The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, creating new challenges and opportunities to defend against sophisticated attacks. At Northrop Grumman, we provide a wide range of capabilities to stay ahead of these threats. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com backslash cyber. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Joining us today is retired United States Navy Admiral Mike Rogers, the former director of the National Security Agency and the first commander of U.S. Cyber Command. He's now a cyber consultant who also serves as the chairman of the advisory board of the cybersecurity firm Clarity. Mike, welcome back, and it's always great having you aboard. Great to talk to you today, Vago. An absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our coverage of naval warfare. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Mike, uh, you know, e extraordinary period for cyber over the last couple of weeks, not just from the standpoint of uh, the ransomware attacks, which we've uh, discussed on this program and discussed with you in a couple of different ways, uh, but also yesterday uh, regarding critical infrastructure where the president, uh, where President Biden sort of noted that if the United States gets into a, a great power shooting war, it's more likely than not going to be triggered by uh, cyber activity. Uh, and so it, it issued a presidential uh, decision uh, memorandum. Walk us through what this uh, decision on critical infrastructure means and what it's going to drive across an ecosystem that is already changing very rapidly. So I want to start with the narrow and then talk about how the whole broader game is, 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 is changing and how, how leaders and followers need to think about it. So I, I think what it highlights is, first, the administration has clearly come to the view that critical infrastructure represents a significant vulnerability for our nation. That while it provides us great functionality, and does great things for us, we also have to acknowledge that there is significant potential vulnerability. And therefore, in a, in a potential conflict or crisis scenario, critical infrastructure assumes an even greater role. In light of that, it, it's clear that the government has decided we need to rethink what is the role of the government with respect to oversight and standards for security, if you will, within those critical infrastructure uh, areas. And so you're starting to see a journey begin where I expect what is going to play out is the government will start to impose specific cyber security regulations or standards, so to speak, for certain aspects of the economy. Not everything, but in those areas they define as critical infrastructure. And critical infrastructure normally was defined traditionally as those areas which either had significant impact on our economic well-being, on significant impact on the safety and well-being of our citizens, or potential loss or disruption could significantly impact the nation's ability to function. We generally use those three kind of criteria to describe, well, how did you decide this was critical infrastructure, so to speak? So on both of those questions, how do we need to think about what is critical infrastructure? Because we're recognizing that there is a vast array and variety of things and breaches that end up being more important than we once thought, right? I mean, you were in that business actually of yeah. being like, huh, that was a really clever way of getting that piece of information in a way we might not have thought of. And second, what's the right way to impose these kind of standards? Because historically, 
you know, it, it's it's funny. On the one hand, you know, folks don't really complain all that much about fire safety standards. And I've been one of the people who's argued this is a lot like fire safety standards. And yet there are those who pushed back against these standards saying, well, this is nanny state and it's, you know, up to companies to protect their data. I remember having this uh, conversation with some very prominent members of Congress. What's infrastructure? What should be protected? How do we do this uh, ultimately so that it's as successful as we need it to be? So let me try to break that down to what I think are three core areas. The first is, I think Colonial Pipeline shows you there are more areas of significant vulnerability or significant single points of disruption than we truly understand. I mean, I don't think intellectually we understood, oh, so we have a single pipeline on the East Coast of the United States, the most densely populated portion of our nation and that one pipeline system moves 45% of you know energy products. Intellectually, I thought we we understood that, but I suspect we didn't say to ourselves, so what are the implications if that's disrupted and if it's disrupted for a significant period of time? So I, I think the first point is Colonial shows us there's a lot more potential single point failure, single point significant impact than we really realize. The, the, the second thing is in terms of developing standards and what the approach is, we've got to do this collaboratively as a partnership. You know, my argument will always was, look, the people who understand the segment better than anybody else are the ones who operate it and function within it day to day. So having the government come in and say, hey, we're your friends in Washington. Let me tell you what the right way is to do this. My argument always was, could we get together and talk collaboratively about, let's take their experience, let's take the government's knowledge, and let's come up with a prioritized scheme because you can't do everything. So let's come up with a risk-based prioritization that outlines some specific steps we can take that makes sense from the industry standpoint, makes sense from a government standpoint, and offer us the highest level of return. Doing things just for the sake of doing things never really seemed to be of much value to me. And then thirdly, particularly on the congressional side, look, with the infrastructure package appearing to be close to passage, let's make sure that within that package, we are trying to account for cybersecurity as well as could we try to minimize as we're looking to repair, as we're looking to replace, as we're looking to create new infrastructure, let's not replicate these single points of failure or these single points of significant vulnerability. Let's put redundancy and resiliency and security as a core design aspect of these literally billions and billions of dollars we're gonna spend. Let's not pay for this later. I'd rather pay for it up front, so to speak. Uh, do you expect uh, opposition? And um, because, right, the argument was, well, you know, uh, small businesses, you know, you're making an imposition, it's a cost on them. My argument is a small business uh, needs to be as protected as a big business because the small business will have insight into something big and potentially highly classified. And the compromise happens not at the major prime level that's spending a couple of hundred million dollars uh, on cyber, but it actually will happen at that smaller level uh, where uh, unfortunately our Chinese and Russian friends, as, as well as Iranians and North Koreans have been able to, to sort of harvest quite a lot of data. How do we do this in a way where the small is as safe and secure as, as, as the big? 
So in some ways, I think we're talking about two different problem sets. If you look at critical infrastructure, most of the business owners within the critical infrastructure segments to date, the government has defined 17 of them. Most of them tend to be large. Where you tend to find smaller business entities is within areas more broad than just critical infrastructure. And it's not one or the other. We got to address both. The, the approach that we took in the government initially for the smaller businesses was if we can start with the mid and, and bigger levels within a sector, then we can push down that expertise, we can push down that knowledge to the smaller elements within the sector. I don't think that's worked as well as we had hoped. I, I won't speak for the current government team, just as an observer though, my input would be it, it doesn't seem to have worked as well as we had hoped. So we have to come up with some collaborative means to help the business sector, the small end of the business segment. It's one of those things, take a look at the Small Business Administration, for example. I wonder, why don't we have loan programs to help businesses with cybersecurity, smaller businesses? Why don't we have programs that are designed to enable smaller businesses to directly access cyber expertise, perhaps provided by the government as a service as part of our small business outreach effort? I just think there's a lot of things that we could do on the smaller side that we just haven't really looked at to date. Um, one, one of the things that um, there's been, th there's a lot of change happening in this ecosystem. Um, you know, we, we, we even had the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, your, your friend, General John Hyten, uh, come out uh, at NDIA's uh, Emerging Technologies Institute at their launch event and, and talk about the war game uh, that uh, the United States fared badly in in October. Uh, in a defense of Taiwan uh, situation where U.S. forces found themselves to be, you know, massed forces were sitting ducks to hypersonic attacks. You know, we, uh, you know, look at a degree of electromagnetic mastery and an ability to communicate, and we found that we couldn't communicate. And, and then we found all of our logistics lines would be contested, J just like strategists for decades have been saying was going to be the case, by the way, right? I mean, the revelation wasn't necessarily new. What was what was new was that the alcoholic was recognizing that it had a problem, right? <laughs> it all starts with acknowledging the problem before you can really focus on fixing it. Talk to us about how, and I want to get to General Hyten's comments in a minute, but talk to us about how the ecosystem is changing and the change in the ecosystem and how both leaders and followers need to be changing in this changing ecosystem because the administration is taking this stuff seriously. It's moving out. But each, you know, there, there's just a lot of change, whether it's on ransomware and standards for ransomware, embracing the Solarium Commission recommendation. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of activity in this space. Yeah, so we're in a period of great churn. And that's true. For example, I'm going to step outside the blue, so to speak. If you just look at red, if you look at the actors out there, so nation states are increasing capability and their risk calculus seems to be a willingness to take greater risk with respect to cyber. So they're being more aggressive. So take a look at SolarWinds, take a look at the Microsoft Exchange, just much more aggressive and much more capable. At the same time, look at what is happening with the non-state actors, largely criminal groups, but you could argue it's more than just criminal groups much more capable, the lines between the nation state and criminal actors in some areas, particularly in Russia and Eastern Europe are really blurring where there clearly are relationships in some measure of sanctuary and or mutual interaction between these state actors and these criminal groups. 
Criminal groups, meanwhile, starting to feel the pressure as a result of the ransomware activity and some pushback against it. So you see, you're watching criminal groups form cartels now. You're watching criminal groups rapidly change identity. You know, one day they're on, they're on the web and they're an active actor, so to speak. And the next day, suddenly their footprint disappears. I, I, I look at that and go, guys, that, that is an adaptive adversary who is pivoting. Um, so there's just a lot of churn at the moment. If you look inside the system then, the positive side is there is broad recognition that we have a major set of issues here that we're gonna have to act to address these issues. The challenge is, okay, so just how do we act and how do we prioritize? What are the roles that between government and the private sector Clearly, the who does what is still an issue of much discussion. And my biggest concern always was, and boy, I used to say this, you know, to the two presidents I worked for, as well as the secretaries in the Congress, you cannot fix this problem by just writing checks. Okay, so just throwing money at this is not going to get us where we need to be. I'm not arguing that resources, whether it be money, people, expertise, is not important, but it is not an end all you know, universal solver here. It's not enough. And at the moment, I'm watching us throw a lot of money at the problem. And I'm thinking to myself, guys, we need to step back and ask ourselves some more fundamental questions. Like, do we have the fundamental structure right? Is the broad strategic direction that we're taking appropriate? Hey, what other parties out there or, or entities do we need to bring into our solution set? What kind of alternatives do we need to consider? At the moment, my, it seems to me the answer is we're sticking with the basic approach and we're gonna throw a lot more money at it. And I'm going, guys, doing the same thing is unlikely to produce different results, even if you throw more money at it. So I'd like us to step back and think about what's working well and what's not working well. And how can we use this crisis? Because crisis is opportunity. Man, I used to, every time, something went wrong significantly. I used to turn to the teams I led and said, ladies and gentlemen, we will not let this crisis go to waste. This is how you jam change down a bureaucracy's throat. This is how we get increased prioritization. This is how we get greater visibility. And this is how we get senior decision-maker attention. And we not only get their intention, but their credibility is on the line. So we drive them to action. And we present them alternatives and solutions, not just, oh my God, things are terrible. Look what's happened. That, that's not going to get us where we need to be. Um, uh, John Hyten's uh, comments uh, were regarded as, as a watershed, even if there were many strategists who were saying, you know, or, and are frustrated and saying, hey, look, it's, it's about time. I mean, folks have been saying, you were saying this inside the system, uh, not to give you too much credit about this, right? In terms of the challenges that we present, you were there uh, for the merger of the electronic warfare and the cyber community that was resisted by some, uh, you know, because, because regarding it as this is one contiguous space uh, rather than a, a bifurcated uh, space. Um, you know, if, if you were uh, a betting man, you might say the revelation of that war game uh, that changed the service chiefs and the chairman uh, and the civilian leadership's mind may have been what led to a $25 billion increase. But as you said, it's not about just spending more money because that budget measure actually includes a lot of stuff that we've done and we just want as opposed to may need. 
what's the cultural change that we need, uh, Mike, uh, in, in this, as opposed to just sort of spending more money? Because for some people, spending more money is perfectly fine, but it's not likely to get us to where we need to go, given the kind of adversaries we have. Right, in and, and of right, itself. It isn't in, in and be, of itself. Yeah, it isn't going to be sufficient. Because I used to argue, look, guys, we can buy the greatest technology in the world, but if we don't fundamentally address the culture imperative that, that will drive change, culture is what sustains change. Culture is what sustains excellence. It, guys, buying stuff, that doesn't sustain excellence. Buying stuff, that doesn't lead us. It's an element, but in and of itself, it won't get us to where we need to be. And I thought the point that General Hyten was trying to make was, look, guys, we need to acknowledge that we need a fundamentally different approach to how we're going to fight. That continuing to do more of the same is not going to get us where we need to be. And the scenario he outlined was, look, in October, the adversary was able to negate much of our strategy and our ability to fight in part because our strategy seemed to be a continuation of the way we had been fighting for the last 20 years. And now we've got a potential adversary or competitor who has, I will give the Chinese credit, they have spent a lot of time studying us. And they look at us and go, so what enabled your success for the last 20 or 30 years when it comes to war fighting, you had this superb global low logistical infrastructure that enabled you to protect force and sustain force at global distances for extended periods of time. Hey, and you didn't protect any of it. So we're gonna break that. We're gonna make it hard for you to project force. We're gonna make it difficult for you to sustain that force. We're gonna make it hard for you to operate forward from a logistics standpoint. They also have said to themselves, you know, another advantage you Americans have is you have this global command and control structure set up that enables you to coordinate widely disparate forces to achieve outcomes. Guess what? We're going to break your command and control. We're going to negate your ability to communicate. We're going to see how you are able to adapt to coordinate these various activities that you're doing around the world. We're going to negate that and we're going to take it away from you. They look at us and go, look at this amazing ISR capability, the situational awareness capability that the Americans have created and by extension, their allies you know, guess what? We're going to blind those sensors. We're going to take away the interconnectivity. We're going to innate your ability to gain knowledge of the battle space where we are. And guess what? We're going to out. And lastly, they know that everything we do is largely built around concentration. You know, hey, we get the lodgement into the AOR. We, we flow into the existing infrastructure, whether it's basics, bases that exist in an area, whether it is maritime things afloat. They know that we, we flex and push all this mass forward, so to speak. We develop these lodgements that we deploy force from and sustain that force using these theater connect, connections, if you will. And I, I think the other thing they did was, guess what? We're, we're going to take away that infrastructure from you. You're not going to be able to count on air bases. You're not going to be able to count on logistics seaports. You're not going to be able to count on to being able to sustain maintain, repair, force structure in the AOR or close to the AOR. We're going to take that away from you. We're going to inject more risk into that for you, which basically blows our entire strategy the last 30 years out of the water. And I think that's what John saw and is trying to highlight 
So we need to think differently. And the reason he wanted to go so public about it was this isn't just about how we spend money and what we buy. This is about every one of us in this organization asking ourselves, what do we need to do differently? And how can I, and whatever my duties are, how can I be part of the solution here and not part of the problem? I, I, I want to go uh, to uh, deterrence, uh, re responding to Russia and then fleet cyber defense next week is Navy League. Huntington Ingalls Industries uh, is sponsoring our coverage at, at Navy League. And of course, Fincantieri Marinette Marine uh, is our uh, naval warfare sponsor. But I want to take you to this question of, you know, you, you without getting you to sort of turn on your flag officer brothers uh, and, and <laughs> sisters, right? W what, what John said, we have known and been discussing for some time. And on an individual level, I've been having these conversations with forward-minded officers, literally, Mike, for like 20 years, yeah, roughly. Um, you, you and I have had this conversation uh, over, 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 over a period of time. What, what is it about this that is, you know, A, why has this been so hard? Because the organism has had leaders in it saying we're on the wrong course and we need to do things differently, right? So what, what's been the problem and why is it starting to change now? Is it a different generation of leaders? Like what, what, is, what is it? Because we could have drawn a bright line and, and I've talked to service chiefs who have acknowledged the problem like 15 years ago. It's just not abundantly clear we really did anything about it, which is I think a frustration people have. So two things strike me. If you look at history, historically as a military broadly, but I would also argue the Navy in particular, we have enacted change broadly driven by two fundamental thrusts. The first is pain. It's amazing what you do in the aftermath of a strategic defeat like Pearl Harbor and much of your core strategic elements, in this case, the big guns of battleships are lying overturned or sunk on the, you know, on the seabed of Pearl Harbor. So we're forced to say to ourselves, well, guess what? You know, that strategy, we gotta come up with something different. So pain, number one. And then number two, if you go back to the 30s, where I would argue in many ways, interestingly, we, we had among the most, I thought, greatest strategic insights as to, so who's our potential adversary gonna be in the future and how might we best prepare ourselves? The second thrust, those times when we didn't have many resources, it's amazing what you do when you don't have a whole lot of capacity and capability. You're forced to think and you're forced to really ask yourself, so when we do get more resources, how do we want to spend them? So if you look at, even in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, every major weapon system we use to defeat the Japanese from Essex-class carriers to integrated logistics, Every one of those ships, for example, was designed prior to December, 3rd, December the 7th, 1941. Because even though we didn't, have, we didn't have all the money and the resources we wanted, we spent a lot of time thinking about when we get those resources, how do we need to apply them? And what I think about today is we haven't experienced great pain and we've been in a resource-rich environment that tends to drive most bureaucracies to the conclusion, let's keep doing what we're doing. Where I'm hoping we get change is we're seeing some measure of pain associated with a lot of this cyber activity. In and of itself, it's not enough. But I also think you're starting to see the senior most leadership of the organization say, 
guess what? We have to think about this differently. So you're seeing increased investment in war games, simulations, and strategic thought, which I think really is a big force multiplier for us. The frustration, and I'm sure John Hyten feels this. I know I certainly do. The frustration is it just takes so long to get a bureaucracy. Absent some compelling pain, it, it just seems to take bureaucracy so long to change. Because the other thing I always found about change was most people intellectually will say, oh yeah, oh, you're right, we need to change. But then when you ask them, now, how about you? They'll say, well, you know, hey, but I'm a hardworking person. I'm doing everything to the best of my ability. I don't really think I need to change. Uh, that always frustrated me the most. Change starts with every one of us, not just, because remember these organizations, they're men and women. They're, they're, they're not some faceless monolith. Two, uh, two questions. Uh, first question, uh, next, next week is Navy League. Obviously, we're going to hear from the Chief of Naval Operations, the uh, man who is a cyber uh, sailor of the First Order, having commanded 10th Fleet. Uh, and, you know, talk to us a little bit about the unique Navy challenges and the challenges the Navy's got to get its arms, arms around, right? Chris Cleary is the Chief Cyber Advisor uh, to the Navy uh, leadership. Uh, we're looking forward to him joining us next week and having a little bit of a deeper conversation, a little bit of an after action uh, after, after Navy League. But what do you think, Mike, the Navy needs to be doing? You know, the service still acknowledges a lot of vulnerabilities across its SCADA systems. Uh, as we saw, have been seeing in these war games, the electromagnetic spectrum is going to be very contested. We saw that massed naval forces really paid a very high price from what we can understand of that October war game uh, at the hands of hypersonic uh, weapons. How does the Navy need to be thinking through this, this period, especially in the cyber uh, domain, right? Because there have been a lot of warning incidents, and I go back to the uh, report, you know, Michael Baer and, and Ron Moultrie uh, put together for uh, then Secretary uh, Spencer, Ron now obviously the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. How, how does the Navy need to be getting its mind around cyber uh, and the electromagnetic spectrum? So first step back, I would urge everybody to think more broadly. Don't start by thinking about cyber and the spectrum. Step back and think, so how does cyber and the spectrum fit within the broader Navy vision and strategy. The Navy's number one challenge, and I argued this when I was in uniform, a part of it, the Navy continues to be way too platform centric. We continue to view the core focus of strategy should be these large and expensive platforms we keep creating. And my argument always was, we need to get away from this idea that it's all about these incredibly exquisitely capable high-end platforms that give us great capability, but are very limited in quantity and really start to impact our ability to disperse. Because one of the takeaways from this war game scenario that John Hyten has pointed out, this obsession with mass and concentration is not going to stand as well. We have to be able to disperse and act at broad distances and separation, not that concentration at certain times and places isn't a good thing, that's not what I'm saying, but building a strategy around the idea that, hey, don't worry, we're gonna be able to concentrate and we're gonna be able to achieve mass whenever we want in the battle space and that should be our default norm for schema maneuver. Guys, that is just gonna set us up for major problems. We potentially are looking at an adversary who has built their entire strategy around negating that. Why would we want to play into their strengths? Now, in defense of the Navy, 
Look what happens when the Navy tries to get away from a platform-centric approach. Congress screens jobs and, hey, you build that ship, you build that aircraft in my district, and it employs citizens from my district. You can't stop buying those things. Right. And the defense base doesn't want to let go either. So in fairness to the Navy, there's a lot of adherents out there who think, while they intellectually acknowledge you need to do things differently, again, they don't want to change within their particular slice of heaven. So as I look at what the Navy needs to do then to me is get away from a platform-centric approach and instead ask itself, so what are the capabilities that we need to employ against this adversary? And what are the best methods to do that? And do I need these large capital-intensive platforms, whether it be a ship, an aircraft, do I still have to use this same approach? And that's where cyber and the spectrum comes in for me. Look, cyber and the spectrum, they are not capital-intensive investment areas. They don't take both to achieve significant offensive capability, but I would argue also defensively, they aren't billions of dollars in annual expenditure. You know, I'm not, I'm not talking about the, they're cheap. Right. I don't mean that. But on the other hand, we're not talking about life cycle costs that are in the hundreds of billions, if not in the trillions of dollars. And that's what happens when you look at a major weapon system, pick it, like an F-35, an F-22, a forward class carrier. Now, I'm not trying to argue carriers are inherently bad. Nobody should take that. But on the other hand, we have envisioned a future for ourselves that, quite frankly, we can't afford to build. Um, two, uh, we have about two minutes left, and I've got uh, two deterrence-related uh, uh, questions. I want to end with Russia, but in between there, um, there are some who look at uh, General Hyten's comments, and they say, good on him, made clear that the United States is, is willing to fight over Taiwan, so that sends a deterrent message to the Chinese. On the other hand, folks will also say, hang on a second, you just empowered the Chinese to miscalculate by saying that we don't have this right. I see it a little bit differently. I see this as a message to Beijing. We're figuring it out. And you know, we have massive capabilities, so don't screw with us. Was it a mistake or a good decision to make the statement he made? And then I've got a deterrent question I want to ask you about Russia. So the, the short answer is no, I, I don't think it was a mistake. Because to me, John said something that is patently obvious to anybody who has ever looked at this problem set. And I don't take from his comments, it means that somehow our ability to respond to a crisis scenario in Taiwan is without options for us. That's not what I take from his comments. Um, let me ask you uh, about uh, Russia. Um, the president met with Vladimir Putin. Uh, you and I had this conversation before uh, the president uh, and his Russian counterpart met. You know, you know, he laid out, hey, I need your help on this. Here are the critical infrastructure, and you're going to get nailed if you don't do these things. Uh, then there was the largest series of ransomware uh, attacks. Just to show you how undeterred and uncowed Moscow is, all you have to look at is they had state-sponsored doping. Their, their athletes are still allowed to compete in the Olympics while Moscow conducts military exercises off the host country's shores, right? Off of Japan's shores. So that should tell you something. So despite all of the warnings, Vladimir Putin didn't seem to stop any ransomware activity, even if uh, the uh, our evil gang sort of disappeared. Dmitry Alperovich thinks they're spending $70 million in rubles on the Black Sea coast. From your standpoint, what does the United States have to do 
after the president delivered a message, right? Because there's this concern that if the president doesn't and the United States doesn't follow up somehow, it sends a message not only to Moscow, but to Beijing, your, your words have no meaning. How does the United States need to respond to Russia in the wake of some of these activities and how to respond to the Chinese? In the, so in the my view with the Russians, particularly the ransomware, was, OK, let's accept Putin's prostations, if you will, that, hey, I have nothing to do with this. Then let's hammer the hell out of these criminal groups. If Putin says he's not involved, has no knowledge, OK, let's hammer the crap out of him and see how Putin responds. Let's see if it really is true that he has no connections. Let's see if there really is no knowledge or relationships. I'm like, look, this is a criminal group. It's not a nation state. It's a totally different problem set. It gives us a whole lot more not options, I think, than if we're dealing with a nation state. And in this case, the nation state has publicly said, I have nothing to do with these entities. I have no knowledge, no relationship. Okay, then let's put it to the test. Let's go after them and see how the Russians respond. I would just be much more aggressive on the criminal side. I just think there's a real way to put the Russians to a very visible public test if what they're telling us really is true. Um, in the case of the Chinese, look, historically, the Chinese tend to respond to strength and numbers. So as I look at China, our, I always thought our view is we need to be very public, we need to be very direct, and we need to align multiple nations along our positions. Historically, the Chinese tend to back down when they think they're view, when they think they're dealing with a sort of cohesive response, not just one entity, but multiple entities. Historically, they tend to, to back off. I'd like to put that to the test. Mike, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program and already looking forward to having you back on the board. Thanks very much, sir. Thank you, Vago. Everyone is a contributor at Northrop Grumman and every day is an opportunity to help defend our nation and our allies. Visit our careers page at ngc.com to learn about joining the Cyber and Intelligence Mission Solutions team.